Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they, uh, but they might light of it, they made light of it rather, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treating them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he sent to his servants, he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways as, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test? Let me see here, I lost my place. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And then they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. They first died uh, after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose life of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Let's pray together. Father, we yield our hearts to you. Speak to us by your word. We, we ask, Lord, that our hearts would be able to receive everything that you want for us today, Lord, these verses for us today, what we're going through today, what we're dealing with right now, 
Thank you for your perfect timing. Thank you that you orchestrate these things to minister to us at the perfect time. Help us to be teachable and humble. Help us to be uh, wanting your truth and your reality at all costs and be willing to not just hear your word, but honor you by obeying it. We pray that obedience would mark our lives, Lord, by your grace and by your power. So set this time aside for your holy use as only you can. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is in the last week of his public ministry, of his earthly life. Last time we looked at Palm Sunday a few weeks ago. And so he's on, he's been on his way to Jerusalem. We saw that in Caesarea Philippi, where from that point on, especially the verbiage in Luke says he faced steadfastly towards Jerusalem. He knew that his time was coming. All the other times where they tried to capture him and seize him and all those things, he was elusive because it wasn't his time. Galatians says in the fullness of time, God, God brought forth his son. So there was a very, very specific time that Palm Sunday fulfilled prophecy that Daniel prophesied and, and actually fulfilled to the day when the Messiah would come. It's amazing when you study Daniel and you see how precise God's word is. That's why Jesus said the rocks will cry out. That prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Whether you fulfill it or rocks fulfill it, it's going to be fulfilled. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem. Last time we saw him talk about the lack of fruit in Israel. We saw the money changers that he cleared out. That was that the, there was supposed to be a testimony within the court of the Gentiles to be a light to the Gentiles, but instead they were stumbled by people ripping people off there in that area. And then Jesus went to a fig tree that was, didn't have fruit and he cursed it. And then later he's talking to the, to the Pharisees and talking about them rejecting him and not believing him and all the stuff. They were the ones that were supposed to lead the nation in bearing fruit and receiving the Messiah, but they did not. So the whole theme of fruit and so forth. So here we're, we're still right in that last few days before the crucifixion. Jesus is preparing his disciples. We see that in the book of John. Basically half of the book of John is the last week of his life preparing his disciples for his departure. We'll get there when we get to the book of John uh, in 2020 or whenever we get there. I don't know how long it'll take, but we'll get there. Hopefully the rapture comes before that, uh, you know, for many reasons. Uh, but so he's, he's sharing, he's opening up his heart. He's on, he has the cross in his sights here. And so he's telling more parables. And last time he spoke of fruit, but this time he's talking about other things. It's still holding people accountable. He's still speaking parables that are prophetic in many ways. And we'll see that today. They're going to be fulfilled this very week. They're like cascading upon one another and, and coming out of him quick, faster and faster because this is getting close to the end where they would reject him and they would uh, you know, reject their Messiah. And he's holding them accountable and he's speaking to these Pharisees and he's showing them that they're not guiltless and so forth. So we're going to see a lot of that. In the beginning parable, he's going to talk a little bit about a city that's burned and so forth, and that city is Jerusalem. I mean, in AD 70, he's in other places where he prophesied related to it uh, that because of their rejection of him, uh, that that city is going to be destroyed, and the temple is going to be destroyed, and, and, and in AD 70, that, that did happen. And so in Jerusalem now, there's great evidence that all of that happened. You could go down 40 feet. I've been, in, I've been to Jerusalem, and you can go to these digs where they've dug down 40 feet, and you can see this famous burned house that was a result of the fire and all of that from what he's about to talk about. But also, you get to see these foundation stones that were part of the temple and so forth that, were, that are down 40 feet, because over time, there's layers and layers and layers, and you can see those foundation stones, and Jesus said not one of these stones will be left on another, and he was exactly right precisely right and 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 so there's evidence of that even the the general the roman general that oversaw that titus if you go to uh, rome today there's what's called the arch of titus and on that arch is inscribed a lot of the things that they carried out of the temple including the menorah and so there's great historical evidence that that uh they did this and this prophecy was fulfilled and so he is leading them towards 
revealing what's going to happen in many, in many respects, including his crucifixion. We start in verse 1 of chapter 22. He says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again. Notice the word again there. So he's already been speaking in parables. We saw that last time. He's going to continue to do that. And said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage. And that's how they did marriages that, at that time in that area and still do today. Uh, arranged marriage, a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Notice the word willing there. It wasn't that they didn't have a choice. They were not willing to come. Again, verse 4, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed. But they made light of it and went their ways, one, of, one to his own farm, another to his, his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he set out his armies, destroyed those murders, and burned up the city. This is judgment. This is the, what he's going to be talking about later related to Jerusalem. So he's speaking there of that. And it's really the, them reaping the consequences of their rejection of their Messiah, which will culminate in a few days. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together, notice the word, all whom they found, both good and bad. That's from a, a worldly perspective, not from God's perspective, from a worldly perspective, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him in outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. There's going to be a wedding feast. When we went through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, we saw that, that, that feast, the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the lamb, where we're actually in Revelation, as you may remember, where we, we were called his wife at that time. This marriage supper of the lamb. And so he is preparing that for us. Jesus said, if I go away, I prepare a place for you. And, and it's, it's a beautiful picture of God's desire to uh, enjoy us and let us enjoy him. Feasts, God's into feasts. Amen? God loves feasts. All the feasts of the Old Testament were like for a week. They didn't have a holiday for one day. Holidays for a whole week and there was lots of eating and, you know, there's, and even the wedding supper of the lamb. It's a feast there. So I can't wait for that for many reasons, okay? You know, you know me. You know where I'm coming from here. So, but the key to understanding what Jesus is getting at is this wedding garment. That's the key to understanding the whole parable. And there's a problem in our culture. We're a Western culture. We're not Eastern culture. And so it's hard for us to relate to this. But there really were two invitations when they would invite. They would send out the initial invitations hoping to get a headcount RSVPs for kind of how, to, how much to prepare, what they would prepare would depend on how many people were coming because if just a few were coming, they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, spend very much money and so forth versus having a lot of people come. They would, they would buy more and different types of things. And, and, you would, and these, these, these celebrations, most of them in the Bible that we see related to weddings and all that, they last for a week. How would you like to go to a wedding celebration for a week instead of a Saturday afternoon? A whole week you're celebrating. And so these were a big commitment because you're, you're changing your schedule around and all of that. But um, the one thing that we need to understand is, is that many, many times there were specific garments that were provided ahead of time for this feast. And the host would provide these wedding garments. And, and, and especially in light, and he talks about this being a parable where there's a king. So there's no limitation to how many people he can invite. Money's no issue. And there's no limitation to what he, how he can uh, provide wedding garments for people. It's, it's, it's a place of honor. See, this is the thing we need to kind of help uh, our understanding with is that those wedding garments, being invited is an honor and being extended to a, especially a king, right? And, and, and the wedding garment, that's an honor as well. It's a, it's a garment of honor. You're a, you're a guest, you're honored guest there and providing that garment and so we see in the parable this man came in and didn't have a garment and 
and it offended the king. It was against the law. It was, I mean, it was it was great, great way to offend a king. That's the last people uh, you want to offend, by the way, are monarchies. Um, but, you know, you don't turn these things down. Would you turn down an, an invitation? Let's say tomorrow you went to your mailbox and you opened up the mailbox and after you threw away the junk mail, uh, you looked and there was a, a nice envelope, just calligraphy, handwritten, it's from the White House. And they were inviting you to a dinner. Now before you answer too quickly, <laughs> would you really turn it down? I mean, would you really turn it down? I don't think there's really any of us that would turn it down. Because even if we're not happy with the administration or whatever, we could maybe get our two cents in. I don't know. Say I'm praying for you against my will. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you would go. And when you turn that down, that would be very offensive. And we see in the parable that, that the king just invites anybody because he's already made these preparations. Because the key is they've already RSVP'd. That's the, the key to understanding this. They've RSVP'd, they've said they're going to go, and the parable communicates that. They made a commitment, he's prepared for that many people, but then when it comes time for the second invitation to come to say, it's ready. We've been preparing, this is going to last a week, we have wedding garments for you, the whole thing, you said that you would come, we spent the money to do this, now you're said you're not coming, and you're, and you're doing things that are way, just ordinary things that are not even important. It's not like you're going to go do a family emergency or something, you're just going on with your regular life. That's the key to understanding the parable. So the Jews responded to the initial invitation by being a religious Jew. Not a, not a, an, a Jew in the sense of lineage. It couldn't help that. They were born that way. But by voluntarily being a part of the Jewish religion, they were accepting the invitation that the, when the Messiah comes, that they would receive Him. So that was the initial invitation, and they accepted it, especially these leaders to whom he's speaking. They're claiming they're all about the Messiah. Yes, we need, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, they're waiting. They're saying, I've accepted the invitation to accept your Messiah when he comes. But he's come, and they're rejecting him. That's the whole message he's been saying, as we've seen in the last chapter. They're rejecting that beautiful invitation. Now the Son himself has come, with a forerunner, by the way, to say, the, 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 the wedding supper of the Lamb is in the future. I've come to give you your wedding garments. I've come to give you the rest of what you need to be able to be there. And they totally rejected that. And, and that's what he is exposing. And the key to understanding, what is this wedding garment? What is it? What wedding garment can the Lord Jesus provide? Righteousness. That's what it is. It's righteousness. That's that wedding garment. And the thing is, is that Nobody can get that righteousness unless God gives it to them. They can't earn that wedding garment. They can't go out and purchase their own. Hey, I'm going to go on eBay and woohoo, yeah, wedding garment. I like this. I don't like that. I'm going to go on. I got Amazon Prime. I get free shipping and I'm going to get this, this wedding garment. It's just going to have my initials on it. Like, hey, it's me. You know, I'm here. You're, you should be thankful that I'm here or whatever it is. You can't come with your own wedding garment. All the religions of this world are trying to come their own way. They're purchasing their own wedding garment by their own works. And we see in the parable that it's offensive to God. You either come His way, receive His righteousness being imputed to your account as a free gift, or you don't receive it at all. And God has come and He's gone out of His way to communicate this invitation. And these these Pharisees and, and these Jews that had rejected Christ, they'd already said they would come. They'd already given their first their word in the first place, and now they're going back on it. So then he says, I'm going to invite everybody else, every, every little straggler out there. That's us. Don't you feel privileged and honored today? The highways and byways, that's us. We're the, we're the undesirables out there. We're the people that you know no one would invite, the Gentiles. And because of that, God wants to use us to provoke jealousy in the ones he invited first. The Jews. And that's why we should have a great ministry towards Jews, and there are great ministries towards Jews. So he's continuing highlighting this theme of rejection through these parables with these Pharisees, holding them accountable. He's not even close to being done yet. Wait till the next chapter. <laughs> he's holding them accountable. He still wants to reach them. He hasn't given up on them. He's still giving them chances to repent. He never gives up, up on us till our last breath. There's no giving up. God doesn't give up on anybody, so nor should we. 
So he's highlighting that rejection. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Yeah, that's just like, yeah, right. What do you want from me? Or, nor do you care about anybody, for you do not regard the person of men. He's not talking about he doesn't care, like doesn't have compassion. He's saying you don't show partiality. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So the whole rest of this chapter is this sort of thing, this, this one by one, these groups come, these religious leaders trying to trap him. They're trying to you know, get him caught in his words and prove him to be false and so forth. Now I want you to just be reminded, these men are the highest level of intelligence and study and religious study. They spent their whole lives studying the, the, the Bible and so forth. And they were the ones that knew they were lawyers in the sense of these religious leaders and these scribes and all these people that were so knowledgeable and they're going to try to trip him up. And the first group we see there is the Herodians and they were the ones that, that were part of uh, Herod. Herod, you know, there were different Herods and so forth. And Herod was a puppet of Rome. So these men were puppets of the puppet. <laughs> and uh, they, they were all about having allegiance to Rome and so forth. But then the Pharisees are also there. We see that in verse 15. And the Pharisees hated Rome. So here you have unlikely people joining together to trap him. You know, you've heard the term, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they don't like each other. They disagree with each other. But because they, they hate the Lord Jesus, they're going to unite together and, and they're going to come up with the best question that they possibly can. And they're just convinced Jesus can't win. We got him. There is no way he can answer this and this is it. We, we got him. We've been working. Remember, they've been working on this for a long time. And, and, and so what do, they, what do they say? Well, before that, I do want to say one thing I forgot to mention. In Psalm 139, verse 1, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. It's kind of hard and kind of a disadvantage to debate God when he knows our thoughts from afar. Before we even think them, he knows our thoughts. You're a little bit at a disadvantage related to a debate. Not to mention that little omniscience factor, you know, where he knows everything. So it's just crazy. It's just like when in Psalm 2, when at the end of the tribulation, you have all the armies attacking actually the Antichrist and, and they're coming and converging on him. And then they all look up and they see Jesus coming back with us following, which, you know, we didn't add any fear to them, I'm sure. But then looking at Christ, you know, they, they think that they're going to attack him and actually have a chance of beating him. It's just crazy. So uh, this, is, this is the question that they, they come about this whole taxing and so forth. The, do we pay tax and all that? And the Herodian is important. And this is on purpose. Both the Pharisees and the Herodians were there for his answer. Because if he said, don't pay taxes, then the Herodians would know that, he, that he's not loyal to Rome and he could, that's actually treasonous. But the Pharisees, if he said, don't pay taxes, the Pharisees were, you know, were saying, you know, you're not faithful to, you, you're not faithful to Israel if you, if you pay taxes, rather. If you pay taxes, you're not faithful to Caesar or, or Israel, rather. And, and so they thought that they had him. So he asked them, Give me a coin and, and whose face is on that. And all the Caesars had their face put on the coins. And this is a denarius. Now, I've been to Israel a couple times, and one of them I bought some coins. I've been waiting a long time to be able to, to kind of use this prop, but it's true. This, this right here, this is a denarius from that time. And I'll show it to you in the back. But this is, this is what it was. He said, bring this to me. Jesus looked at one of these 
and said, who's, who's, who's that guy? And you can get a good idea of what the Caesars look like. Not all that impressive, but I'm sure they would say that about us, you know, too. But, um, you know, he, he takes that coin and say, whose face is, is on that? And he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And so the obvious point here, of course, we need to pay our taxes. It's amazing how many Christians are out there that I don't believe we should pay taxes. And it's like, come on. Well, we don't agree with the government. Oh, like the Christians and we're, we're enjoying and, and in full agreement with the Roman Empire at the time. Right. And Jesus still says that. No, we got to pay our taxes. Not one penny more. <laughs> I mean, this is a stewardship issue uh, and not one penny less. We need to pay our taxes. But it also could be applied related to. Uh, whatever is God's, we need to offer it to him, whether it's our finances or whatever. But, but really, if you think about it, we have his image. He has his, his image on what? Us. You know, before, we're in the image of God. We're creating the image of God. That's been marred by the fall somewhat. But we're still in his image. But more importantly than that, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit deposited into our lives. And his seal, we're told, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, a seal is an imprint and so forth. And so we have to render to God's what is God's. And it's a good time to remind ourselves that God owns us. You don't own yourself. We've been purchased with the price, the Bible says. We've been bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with everything. And so it's incumbent upon us to surrender everything to him. And in our culture, especially in our sinful nature, it's very easy to go through the motions and be religious. Just go through the religious motions and just say, I'm good. Have our heart a million miles away from God. Have our hearts a million miles away from how He's speaking to us, how He wants to lead us, what He wants to do in our lives, how He wants us to obey us. But we're going through religious rituals and our hearts are a million miles away. When that happens, are we closer to God and look like what he wants us to be, or we more, have more in common with a Pharisee. The Pharisees had their hearts a million miles away from God and went through a lot of outward rituals and so forth. So God wants us to not just be about religious rituals. He wants us to be engaging him and have that personal relationship with him every single day and to give to him everything that's his, which is everything. It's not just this little portion I give to God and then that's his and the rest I can do whatever I want with. No, all of those funds or all of whatever resource we have, our time, our gifts or whatever, they're all his. They all have his image on it. So we should render to God what is his. What he, we should offer to him what is rightfully his. How would you like somebody to take something that you had that was valuable to you and misuse it? How much would you entrust them with more of, of your things. You wouldn't. You'd say, forget it. I'm not I'm going to bother because they're not managing what I've entrusted to them well. And that's how it is with God. God wants us to be good stewards and good managers of everything, our time, our gifts, our money, everything. He wants it to be completely surrendered over and spirit-directed for His purposes. Amen? All right, the next step at bat is the, the Sadducees. Verse 23. The next, the same day, same day, so we've already had two other groups. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. 26. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. And what was this wife putting in the coffee here? You know, that's one of Pastor Chuck's jokes, so that's why you laughed. But, um, but the, the, you know, that's why. It was funny. It was, I know it's new to you, um, having funny jokes. But there's 27. Last of all, the woman died also, so she drank her own coffee, I guess, huh? But therefore, they're in the resurrection. Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Notice it doesn't say they are angels of God. We're not going to be angels when we die and go to be with the Lord. It doesn't say that. 
And we hear that all the time. Like, where are you getting that? No, it says we'll be like them in the sense that we don't marry and we're, we're single. I guess you could say it that way. Verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Notice he says by God. It's authoritative. Saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So we know a little bit about the Sadducees. I'm not going to get into why they were sad, you see. That's an old bad joke. Um, but they, they were bad off because they were wrong and spiritually not, you know, they didn't know the Lord. And the, their whole belief system was, we don't believe in the supernatural. They were the religious liberals. They were the humanist kind of uh, kind of perspective and they ran the whole stuff with the temple and all of that they're the ones that had the money they were the the professional clergy at the time pharisees weren't they were working men uh there's about five thousand in that day uh but the, the there was a lot, lot less pharisees and and scribes and so forth they were uh, supported by the, what was going on in the temple in fact they were being enriched greatly by ripping people off from the temple and we saw that last time but they only, and this is noteworthy, they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, just like the Samaritans. They only believed in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. And so Jesus rightly and appropriately quotes from one of the books of the first, one of the first five books, from Exodus there. And, and, um, and so they, they believed in the Pentateuch, but they never received it all or interpreted it correctly. And, and notice he says, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's true. We need, it's not one or the other. We need both. We need both in our lives. We need to know the scriptures and we need to know the power of God. And unfortunately, many times in certain spiritual environments or churches, you have to choose. But we shouldn't have to choose. We should be able to have not just the power of God, but God's word being taught and people growing in the word, but not just have the word of God alone, but the power of God represented instead of, you know, the frozen chosen and, you know, no, no miraculous happening, no supernatural happening. You know, God wants us to be walking in both the power of the scriptures and the power of God. We need both in our lives. So they didn't know the scriptures, even the five books. I mean, the Pharisees had the other books to know, know too. They didn't even know the five books. That's not saying a lot for you, right? If you only have five books and you don't know them either and everyone else has more. Um, and so Jesus' argument, though, focuses and hinges upon not just a word, but the tense of a word. That's where he focuses his whole argument. Because he quotes, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they were alive anymore then that's what he would have said. I was there. I guess they're, they're, they're dead. They can't have gods. Dead people don't have gods that, that aren't alive after in the afterlife. And so he took a book that they believed in and said they didn't know it and understand it or the power of God. In fact, the ability to raise people from the dead. That's what he's narrowly talking about. But of course, it could be broadly applied. But he's saying, I am currently right now, which means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. And so that means he does raised the dead and then they rightly were astonished at his teaching verse 34 but when the pharisees heard that he had silenced the sadducees they gathered together uh-oh <laughs> um, those guys couldn't do it we couldn't do it so now what do we do then one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him saying teacher which is the great commandment in the law Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the greatest commandment is to love God. Now, we would expect him to say that the greatest commandment is to obey the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that that would be his number one thing. Does obedience come before love? Or does love come before obedience? What's God's priority? 
If we were to guess what God, if you like, took all 66 books of the Bible and you, someone asked you and you didn't know the scriptures and you were trying to guess what would be the number one commandment in all of the Bible, how many of us would guess on our own, apart from God's revelation, that God would say to love Him with everything in us? How many of us would guess that? Probably not many. We would say it would be something really to obedience or something. We wouldn't guess that God's highest priority for himself and for other people was, is, was and is love. And that's exactly his priority. Now, obedience is part of, of that. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. It naturally follows if we love God, we're going to obey him. But the way to getting God's love is not obedience. We don't get God's love by obedience. He loves us anyway. As much as he's going to love us, it's maxed out. I mean, it's, he can't love you any less than he already does. We could never, even if we spent the rest of our lives trying to get him to love us more, could not get him to love us more. Our obedience to him, and some of you may be coming from backgrounds or you're visiting today, where you've been told in religious environments, if you don't obey God, he doesn't accept you. He doesn't love you. And I'm telling you that God loves you because he is love. And that's the starting place is to love him, accept his love. And then from as a result of that, then he works in our lives to where we want to obey him. And he gives us the power to obey him. So love comes first, then obedience after that but isn't it great that just god wants us to love us just stop for a moment think about that god desires for you to love him he wants you to love him above anything else and of course love isn't a feeling where you know in this culture and around the world people talk about love being an emotion that it's elusive it comes and goes it can't control it i, I loved you today i mean loved you yesterday today i don't love you i don't know why i can't get it back <laughs> you know it's it, love is selfless sacrifice. Agape love, this kind of love, is doing the appropriate thing for the other person, even at my own expense. When I do premarital counseling, I talk about the definition of love a lot. What is, what is love? What is it really? It's doing what's appropriate and right for the other person, even at its own expense. It's sacrificial. And so that's the kind of love that we should give God. We should be sacrificing to demonstrate that love for him. It's not just an emotion. It's not just something I say to him. It's my life. Everything about my life should represent worship and love and adoration to him. Not for any other reason that he loved me first. And he's worthy of it. And he is who he is. Not to get something from him necessarily, obviously. But it's talking about just giving that love that he deserves. What if your kids only express love to you at any given time just to get something out of you i mean sometimes we feel that way it's like you know but when they all they only did that they only did that it would hurt you right god's love for us is way superior to our love for our kids he wants you to love him and do things for him and all of that because you have a genuine heart for him as a person not as a means to an end he's not a rabbit's foot he's not a lucky charm he's not extra luck he's not everything will go my way if i you know he doesn't he's not interested in taking my life and leaving it as it is and then just being like this extra rabbit's foot in my life he wants to transform us and make us from spiritually dead people to spiritually alive and vibrant and fruitful people so that's the greatest commandment and he's quoting from the law of course it's not a new commandment that he gives the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself Sometimes we hear this false teaching that how can I love my neighbor if I don't first love myself? I have to learn how to love myself. So I'm going to pause all helping and loving other people until I focus, love myself, love myself, love myself. <laughs> how do I get that to happen? I don't love myself enough. Wait, I need to take a seminar. I need to read a book. I need to go to a conference. I need to pay a lot of money to some wacko guy that's just telling me that I, he'll teach me how to love myself. The problem is, we already love ourselves too much. The sense of it is love your neighbor as you already love yourself. That's the point. The problem is we are self-focused too much as it is. The false Christian teaching, Christian teaching on television is all centered around man and what we get and have us being the focus of everything that goes on and what I can get and what my, you know all of those things and God wants us blessed, but he gets to define that blessing by us putting him first, taking up our cross daily, following him, put, seeking the kingdom of God first, 
and letting him add all these things that we think we need to us. So we already love ourselves. Now notice I, I highlighted it first, but I'm going to highlight it again. The word hang. When you hang something like a picture, it's probably not speaking of a picture. It's probably speaking of something like in carpentry or something where you, it's a support, something that supports other things. He's saying that the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, the Jews that call it the, the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament hangs. So love is the supporting structure that holds all of the rest of God's revelation in the Old Testament and the New Testament up. It's supporting it. Without the love, it all falls to the ground. It's all not useless. When things fall, when they're not supported in a building, they're not useful for anything. And he's saying that the Word of God, God's revelation, isn't useful how he intended it unless it's supported and held up by love for God and love for others. That's why we talk about it all the time here. This, When we come together, it's not supremely about you and, and, or me. It's supremely about God and supremely about others and how we can serve. How was church today? Well, it's good. The worship blessed me. Teaching was you know, a lot of bad jokes as usual, but uh, you know the the you know the sermon was great or whatever, and I got to talk to some people. All, all of that is great when in the sense of God wants us to be blessed, but we've missed the total purpose of when we come together is to use our gifts and to use our love to build one another up so that disciples are made. So if someone asks us, "How was church today?" It was great. I got to pray for someone. I got to encourage someone. I got to give someone a hug. It looked like they really needed it. I got to ask a question to somebody and took interest in their life that really mattered to them. I got to, you know, all these other things that are other-centered. If we focused on that in an increasing way, this church would be unrecognizable. And I'm not saying it doesn't have that aspect to it. I'm just saying it would be so much more of what God wants. And I'm thinking about the new year. I'm thinking about what's coming. I'm thinking about what God has for us. I'm like, man, does he brought on a lot of stuff in the previous year. He's going to be adding things this year and so forth. All of those things need love to hold them up. They need us to be loving Him with everything in us and loving one another for those things to happen. You know, Calvary Chapel, you, Pastor Chuck had this kind of statement of faith that was very common on church bulletins for a long time. And they, it kind of went away, which is fine. Uh, but it talked about agape love. And I'm just going to read part of it. And this is, I don't know if you've read this before. Some Calvary chapels still have that statement of faith. And we may resurrect that, uh, uh, you know, too. And it's more than what I'm going to read. But this is just about agape love and loving others. Calvary Chapel has been formed as a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our supreme desire is to know Christ and be conformed to his image by the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We are not a denominational church, nor are we opposed to denominations as such, only to their overemphasis on the doctrinal differences that have led to division of the body of Christ. We believe the only true basis of Christian fellowship is Christ's agape love, which is greater than any differences we possess and without which we have no right to claim ourselves Christians. I like that. I really do. Because if we love every difference fades away and is, is not consequential or gets in the way of all that we have in common because we have way more in common than we have differences. Way more. And, and so that's how we're in unity with other believers is we love. And what, what does love do? Love, and Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. It hopes all things. It does a lot of things, but it puts up with a lot. Agape love puts up with a lot. Why, did, why do we have in the, in the New Testament so many times where God's telling us to forgive one another and love one another? Why does He tell us all that? But don't we already know that? We, we don't have any need of exhortation in that area, right? Wrong. We need it. Because of all of our differences, we think that those differences get in the way of being in unity, but it doesn't when we're overflowing with God's unconditional love. And we treat people how He treats us. How much does He have to overlook in your life? in my life, to have fellowship with us. A lot. And so we should have the same. Now he's going to shut all of them down <laughs> uh, by asking them a question. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, 
How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make you make your enemies your footstool? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did, did anyone dare ask or dare question him anymore. Checkmate. That's what, I mean, I'm going to ask you a question now. And, and you're talking with God incarnate here. You think you're going to have an answer to him? And what he's using is the scriptures, Psalm 110 specifically, which is a messianic psalm. And what's interesting is that it's airtight. I want you to look again in verse 44 at that verse. Notice the two lords there. The first lord in most translations is all caps, and the second lord is not. In Hebrew, those are two different words. The first lord is Yahweh. And that's Exodus 3.14. That's I am that I am. It's, it's the name of God. We don't even know the full. I mean, they had to make the, they took out the consonants and all of that. I mean, that's, that's the closest you could get to the actual name of God. But then he says, Lord, again, not in caps. And it's the word Adonai. It's a title, Lord. So he's saying Yahweh said to my Lord, and, and so what's the implications of, what are the implications of that? I mean, can you imagine someone in your, calling someone in your lineage Lord? <laughs> you know, you're going to be calling your, your, your descendants, one of them and your descendants, you're going to be calling them Lord. That wouldn't make any sense unless they were divine. And that's the point. The Messiah isn't just the son of David in a human sense. He's also divine. He's this divine son of God. He's also Yahweh. He's also Yahweh. And that's what he is saying there. And they knew exactly what he's saying. And I believe they knew they were exposed to an extent. And that's why no more questions. The questions at this point in their mind bring out a mirror. And the mirror shows them something they don't like to see in themselves. So the solution, we don't ask any more questions. Then the mirror stays away. And then we don't get to be convicted. And we do that too, don't we? put the Bible away. I don't want it to deal with me. I don't want it to speak to me. I'm not right with God. I'm not, I know I'm in willful disobedience, so I'm just going to put it away as if that solves everything. God's Word is there to help us, to save us, to deliver us, to keep us from things that harm us. He's not trying to stop what we're doing because He wants to ruin our fun. He wants to stop what we're doing because it's destructive. And He loves us. He loves you. And we just put it away as if that means asking no more questions. I'm asking no more questions from that point on. My life is still accountable to that word, even though the book is closed. They were still accountable to the Lord Jesus, even though he didn't ask any more questions. And they tried to fight and, and they tried to resist and so forth. So that's the point. So they're guilty. Now, as we close, think about the wedding garments. Maybe you're here today and you, this is the first time you understood that I don't get to heaven by believing in God or being religious or any of these things, but you get to heaven by having Him give you righteousness that you don't deserve. That's how we can have eternal life right now. Eternal life starts now when you receive Christ. It doesn't start when we, when we die, when we get our new bodies. It starts now. And this is the first time you understood that salvation is a gift that you can't earn. You can never be religious enough to earn it and outdo your sin and you recognize that and you want to receive Christ and you want me to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. Is there anyone here? I just want to check. If there's no one here, that's fine. I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ and I want to pray for you. Anybody here? just want to see. One hand. Anyone else? Okay, repeat after me out loud. And the point is that you are not trusting in these words but God's looking at your heart. There's no magic formula. That's what I'm saying. So repeat after me. Dear God, out loud, dear God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I ask you for forgiveness. I ask you for the free gift of eternal life. I trust in you, Jesus, to pay my way to heaven. I believe in your death. Your, your burial and your resurrection. And I give you my life. Make me into the person you want me to be. I turn from where I've, where, I've, where I've been going and I turn to you. 
Make me into the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would overwhelm our brother and that you would just show him your love for him, show him how much you care for him, that you love him regardless of anything he senses he is or isn't, but that your love is unconditional because your love and that he'll never be worthy of your love. None of us will. Pray you just encourage him, fill him with your Holy Spirit, and help him walk with you each day and grow and become an amazing, mighty man of God, Lord, and help him to trust his new family here, that we love him and are committed to him unconditionally, and we will help him in his, in his growth. We just pray that you'd open up your word to him, we pray, Lord, that he would just have a supernatural hunger for it and he would grow beyond anything we could ever dream of. And we all agree in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lastly, to love God with all of our heart. To be thankful for that, if we're a Christian here, to be thankful for that wedding garment we've received. And to be thankful and want to live for him and love him and serve him and, and give everything for him that he wants us to sacrifice. Maybe some of us need to recommit our lives to him and surrender completely everything to him especially in light of a new year and so forth maybe you've already done that wonderful but he wants us to love him focus on love focus on love loving him and loving one another it's not it's not complicated it's not necessarily easy and we need his strength to do it but it's not complicated we need to love him with all of our heart and love one another aggressively doing what's best for the other person even at our own expense and he'll bless that in our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We, we want to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, Lord. Help us to be loving you in a way that pleases you. And help us to love one another, Father. Help us to be aggressively loving and be sensitive to one another's needs. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would be made famous through our lives as the one that is gracious and loving and the one that has extended so much love to us first. And thus we respond to you with our lives, loving you back. We pray that that would mark our lives. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.